I remember a couple weeks before the day, you know, like before that one day, which was when President Trump announced the travel ban. It was the same day that the NHL and the NBA announced they were um, shutting down. Um, And it was the same day that we found out Tom Hanks had coronavirus. And that was kind of like the day for me. But I remember, you know, we had been hearing about the virus for the weeks before that. And again, that that excitement I talked about earlier was there. I just remember like having friends over like a couple weeks before that and then just like looking at them and saying like, listen, this is going to change the world. Like, do you realize that? But I was saying it in such an excited way. And little did I know, like just a month later, I would be crying about it every day. This podcast has been such a thrill because not only do I get to revisit with students who once sat in my classrooms, but I also get the opportunity to connect with Rowan journalism grads I've never met, as is the case uh, today with our guest, Christina Pacciola. Christina is currently news editor for Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey at the Associated Press, where she started working in 2015 as a desk editor. After talking to her, it's actually quite surprising that our paths haven't already crossed because our lives have myriad overlaps. Born and raised in South Jersey, Christina graduated from Rowan in 2005, just two years after I graduated from Temple, and she went on to get her start in local journalism. For a time, she worked as an editor for The Plain Dealer, a weekly owned by Journal Register Company, which also happened to own the paper I was working at at the time, The Central Record. She's freelanced for South Jersey Magazine, where I once served as managing editor, and she also spent three semesters teaching as an adjunct within Rowan's journalism department. It's indeed strange that it took so long for us to connect, but I'm, uh, I'm extremely glad we finally did. Christina and I had a really wonderful conversation that covered many different topics, from talking about her work as an AP editor to what it was like observing the Capitol riots of January 6th, the frightening and saddening experience of being a journalist in the early days of the pandemic, our shared love of long-form magazine writing, and a lovely recollection that she shared of her and her fellow WIT staffers holding a vigil the day Hunter S. Thompson died. That's just so awesome. (laughs) Christina is so thoughtful and passionate about her work, and it was a real privilege to share that with her during our time. So without any further ado, Christina Pacciola. say that we have a lot of journalists who have graduated 2015, 2016, 2017 um, at the AP who are doing amazing work. And so I'm, I'm very glad that we are, you know, still hiring and, and looking at, you know, younger graduates in the past five or six years. And um, you don't have to have, you know, 20 years experience to work at the AP if you, um, you know, have a, a, a really great resume and, and great clips, um, AP will definitely consider you. So I, th- I think that's kind of makes us unique to some other, uh, you know, major news organizations. 
Oh, that's really cool. That's that's good to know. A big part of my expected audience for this podcast will be current students. And um, so I think that's that'll be really nice for them to know and, and also yeah. for me to just pass along to them. Um, so yeah, before we get too too far into it, um, why don't you just introduce yourself and sure. uh, give us a sense of what it is uh, that you do? Sure. Uh, so I am Christina Pacciola and I am the news editor for Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey for the Associated Press. Um, when I, I started at the AP in 2015, um, being hired as a desk editor. So the AP is broken down in the U.S. into four regions, West, East, Central, and South. And each of those desks has an editing desk. And I was hired right away as an editor for that desk. Um, and I spent a few years in Philadelphia, working on that desk. In 2018, the desk moved to New York City, and I went with it. Um, I didn't move my home. I uh, lived with some friends during the week and came back home to South Jersey on weekends. <laughs> and mm. after about a year and a half of that, I was really trying to get this position. I knew I wanted to be a news editor. And then in December of 2019, so just about a year ago, I got it. And now I'm back in Philadelphia. Excellent. I was going to say, I was wondering where the where you were actually based. Um, yeah. So you yeah. We're in Philadelphia, but obviously everybody's working from home right now. So I am in, I am in South Jersey. Okay, so so you live in South Jersey, um, but the office is is formerly out of Philadelphia. Correct. Yes. Excellent. I am also in South Jersey. I'm in uh, yeah. Med Medford. Okay, so I'm in Palmyra, so you're not too far away. Cool. Yeah, I was wondering when I when I was just looking at your your job title, um, how how it was possible to have su- you know to to be in charge of such a large coverage area. And I, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I was wondering what your, uh, you know, your living situation was and, and the actual, you know, physical space that you were in. Um, what does it, what does give, give folks a sense of what your job actually entails? What's sort of the day-to-day sure. like? So day-to-day, so yes, I have a very large coverage area. Um, This is actually a new thing. We used to have separate editors for Ohio and then a separate editor for Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Um, And then we just decided to merge all three of them and take a more of a regional approach. So I work very closely with my reporters in all three states. I have 17 spread out among the three states, and we're working on the spot news report. So basically, you know, what's happening day to day. Um, I'm collaborating a lot with them. They come to me with story ideas uh, that kind of cross formats or go across state lines, something more national or international. So I'm I'm kind of a liaison in that way. You know, for example, uh, we got some data today from George Washington University about uh, where in the U.S. Uh, those arrested and charged in the insurrection live. So we're kind of analyzing some of that data because there's a disproportionate amount in Ohio and Pennsylvania. So mm-hmm. today I've been working with our DC folks and our data folks on seeing what kind of stories we can glean from that. Um, and then also a lot of planning, working with my reporters on enterprise ideas that they have for for down the line. Um, I was very, very heavily involved in the 
election um, and still feeling the aftermath of that because Pennsylvania is still playing a pretty major role. Um, so my day to day could look very, very different. Some days it just, right. it looks at some breaking news that day. And, and sometimes I'm, I'm planning a big project for the future. What was the, what was the general focus of, um, election coverage, uh, as, as far as, you know, your involvement in it? Sure. Pennsylvania, we knew right off of the bat was going to be play a major role in the election. Uh, for months and months, we had planned that it was all going to come down to Pennsylvania, and it did. <laughs> so yeah. we uh, we were very prepared for that. What we were not prepared for was the timing of you know votes coming in, and just the sheer volume of of them. Um, so. Mm. Our Pennsylvania team, we were just working around the clock over time, um, just analyzing, talking to boards of elections and talking to Secretary of State and really just seeing, um, you know, these areas of Pennsylvania that very well could have and in a way did you know, affect the outcome of the election. So we did a lot of stories about, you know, that some of the geographical, more rural areas of Pennsylvania. Um, we did the same in, in Ohio as well. Um, we, as you probably remember in the last couple of weeks leading up to November 3rd, um, former president Trump and now president Biden and their, their, um, their camps were in Pennsylvania a lot. They knew mm -hmm. how important it was, and so did we. So we were just really concentrating on everything Pennsylvania in those weeks leading up and after, <laughs> and the week right, after. Right, Of course, yeah. I, I remember I read a piece um, in The New Yorker. I think... I want to say it was by Jeffrey Tubin. Um, it was. Are you familiar with this piece about yes. all the, the sort of the flurry of prepared lawsuits? And I, and I remember reading that um, from a, you know, as the perspective of a journalist thinking, man, how are journalists preparing to cover this, this event, this night? It, it just felt like such an overwhelming task with so many variables. Um, what, what 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 did it feel like? I guess, um, for lack of a better term, what did it feel like to be covering it, it, it that night? If that night was actually pretty calm, like the night of November third was was pretty calm because we were just watching returns come in and focusing more on the you know legislative races or you know some of the the other races that that. Um, like the representative races, Congress around the country, but um, it felt like we were preparing for war. We had daily meetings, not only about story ideas, but about the safety of our journalists. Um, we had a whole team mm. dedicated to violence at the polls. Um, Pennsylvania is an open carry state, so we had to be prepared to send people or not send people to monitor um, some of the major polling locations in Pennsylvania on election day in case there was violence. Um, so every day there were multiple talks and meetings and preparations being made um, for 
the actual day, which when it came and went was rather quiet. <laughs> um, hmm. What we were not so prepared for was the January 6th insurrection, um, which we didn't do all of that planning for. So it was kind of mm. a weird dynamic there, you know, where you kind of just never know what's going to happen nowadays. Um, but we have to be prepared for the worst. And we were. What was really great and just so exciting and definitely the highlight of my career was the day, the night before we called, the, the Associated Press called the election for Joe Biden, which was that Saturday on the 7th. Um, I worked about 20 hours that day and we had people go out to 12 major counties in Pennsylvania and literally stand outside the Board of Elections office and be the first person to get the numbers that mm. of how many ballots they had been counting. Um, so it was a lot of phone calls and Slack messages and emails and text messages and spreadsheets and talking to DC and talking to, um, you know, everyone else throughout the, throughout the U S. So it was chaotic, but wildly fun. <laughs> you know, it, it was great. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like a real manifestation of that sort of journalistic energy that I think a lot of folks go into this profession um, mm -hmm. desirous to experience, you know, something really, really interesting, interesting is happening. It's breaking. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked a lot in journalism about mental health, especially since the pandemic began. And a lot of that kind of came out again during election time, after election time, with all of the touting of election fraud, and then especially during the insurrection on January 6th. And I remember talking to, to two of my colleagues, two of my good friends who I, I talk to every day. Um, and one of my colleagues was just really upset. You know, a lot of us were. How could you not be, you know? And sure. I said, <laughs> I felt like kind of an excitement about it. Obviously it was, you know, a gross display of patriotism in, in quotation marks. And obviously it was deadly. <laughs> and some, a lot of our colleagues were injured, um, covering this event, but there was an excitement in me and I felt mm. so strange and I was, you know, expressing my feelings about that. And then my other friend said, but this is why we got into journalism because of things like this. So try not to feel bad that you feel excited. We know that you don't love that it's happening, but just accept the fact that there is a level of excitement there because this is the reason you got into this profession. And I've been thinking about that a lot since she said it and she was definitely right. Mm. Yeah. It, it's, I, I often tell students and, and other folks that, um, who care to listen, that journalism is, is definitely not, I think it, it, it takes a certain type of, um, I'm trying not to paint too broad strokes here, but that you need there, you have to have a certain thick skin and, um, both in order to kind of protect yourself from some of the challenging, the emotionally challenging things that you will probably wind up having to cover, um, and then also combined with that, a, a sort of like 
thrill-seeking mentality in that respect. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't want to conflate like being excited that something bad happens with the notion that it still mm-hmm. can be um, professionally invigorating to experience those moments. Absolutely. I, I just, there needs to be a balance. Yeah. Right. Right. The, um, I'm curious about January 6th. Um, what, because that day, that, that day took me completely by surprise. I was actually working in my home office and, um, my wife texted from downstairs and she said, can you believe what's going on? And I, I said, what are you talking about? And I went downstairs and, and she had, you know, CNN or something on. And, and at first I looked and I said, oh, okay, well, yeah, it looks like a, a protest. What's, what's the big deal? And she's like, no, 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 no. Keep watching. And, um, I'm curious to, to hear a little bit about how it unfolded for you, um, as, uh, an AP editor, what, um, what that sort of chain of events was like. That day it was Friday, I believe. Right. Or no, was it, um, January 6th? And, <sighs> And I was, I was in a meeting, uh, no, it was a Wednesday. I'm sorry. It was a Wednesday. And I was in my monthly meeting with my, with my boss during that time. And I had the television on in the background and we were chatting on the phone and, and I was like, are are you in the Slack channel? Cause you know, we all of our, our, all of our communication is, is through Slack. And I said, I think there's something going on. And she's like, let's go see what's happening. And I think it was around two o'clock. And from then on, I was just glued to the television. Um, It was our Washington DC crew who was taking the lead on everything. So I didn't really have much to do, you know, work-wise, but I was just glued to the television and glued to the Slack channels and what my colleagues were saying live from the scene. And just, it it felt, it felt like controlled panic, (laughs) you know, like, Mm. as you said, a couple, as you said, you know, that thick skin, it's not even necessarily a thick skin. It's like, you know, being able to compartmentalize and say, okay, I'm going to for now set aside my feelings or my anger or my frustration or my sadness and and jump into this breaking news. Um, And that's what we do, right? That's what we do. And that's what they did. And then only uh, when it's hours later, do you kind of sit back and actually acknowledge what had happened. Um, it was just so fast. Everything was just so fast. It was this rally and then a march. And then we saw it was getting a little bit iffy. And then next thing we knew there were windows being broken at the Capitol building. And I think there was just this, this disbelief at first and then quickly into, okay, breaking news mode. Let's, let's, let's cover the hell out of it. And we'll, analyze it later. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's breaking news. That's, that's any, any kind of situation. So we approached it, you know, in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. It was the, um, the surrealness uh, Mm -hmm. of it all was, was maybe the strangest. It took, it it took a little while for my brain to catch up with what I was seeing because, yeah, you know, to, to see like just some of the more iconic images that have emerged from that still, I look at them and I think, mm-hmm. how am I looking at, you know, some of these, these photos inside the Capitol? It's just so, so wild. 
Yeah, and, um, and journalists are no different, except we're, we're using that to build stories, you know, but we're, we're right. trying to put those feelings aside. But was it was it alarming and kind of outrageous? Yeah, absolutely. That's not an opinion. That's a fact, you know. Yeah, I like that. Um, I, I, I like the, the use of the word compartmentalize. I think that is more accurate than thick skin because it does require you to just, okay, open up a certain, you know, box in, in your, in your mind, uh, and, and mm-hmm. use that to, to generate the news and to report it. And then later, okay, then you can start to sort of incorporate it into the rest of your just human processing. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we've had to do a lot of that. Never more than in the past, you know, 12 months, um, starting with the pandemic. I don't, I don't think any of us have, have ever felt that way, you know, before. Um, living through something personally and working it professionally has been the biggest challenge I know, at least of my career. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to turn the clock back a little bit and, um, you know, ask you what, what was it that made you want to study journalism in the first place? Um, and did you go to Rowan with that intention right off the bat? It was something I wanted to do since I was very, very small. (laughs) Um, And yes, I definitely went to Rowan um, knowing this was exactly what I wanted to do, Um, which is very comforting thinking about it. You know, it's changed, you know, in, 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 you know, the types of jobs that maybe I thought I would had or the types of writing or reporting, but it was all based in some sort of journalism. Um, When I was very small growing up in the Philadelphia area and watching Philadelphia news, um, I loved action news on, you know, ABC six, and I would watch it with my family all the time. And there was a, um, newscaster named Lisa Thomas Laurie, which I'm sure a lot of people remember. remember, (laughs) And I would always be walking around my house with a notebook. I used to play this game where I would write down what everyone was doing. I had seven people in my house and I'm the youngest and I would go kind of spy on my sisters as they were getting ready to go out that night. And I would go into the dining room under the table and I would write down what they were doing. And then I would go and see what my parents were doing and my brother and my grandmother. Um, and I just did this all the time. And my family started calling me Lisa Thomas Pacciola. And <laughs> that I was very small. And so that's my earliest memory of knowing that that there was just something there in the, you know, news-wise, knowing what was happening in the world, being inquisitive, reporting that that I was always drawn to. My 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 mother always used to say I was nosy, and I said, no, I'm newsy. I'm newsy, not nosy. <laughs> um, so that stayed with me, you know, all throughout uh, high school, and I um, went in as a journalism major day one at Rowan. Well, what do you think it was that, because it's so interesting now, you're, you're my fourth uh, interview for this podcast. And, um, really almost everybody has very similar, uh, stories and, and that, that we're, we're driven by a common, uh, interest, uh, from, even from, from youth. And I'm no different. I was always, I, I had my, my parents would give me their cam, uh, you know, VHS camcorder. And I was constantly just, I would sit in the kitchen and, just film or tape, um, 
you know, conversations. And I would, I would leave it on for like an hour. And and my parents were always like, why, what are you doing? Nothing, this isn't anything exciting. And I would say, no, I just enjoy capturing, you know, our conversations. And there was something about that, that I was just so drawn to. Um, I'm curious if you can articulate what it was about like that, what it was about wanting to, to, you know, capture people's mm-hmm. thoughts or, you know, jot things down? Like what, what was it that actually drove you? I, I think I, I've always found it fascinating the way that news is spread, how we could know something that's happening around the world. Um, and I always just wanted to know more about certain things. I used to have these books. I actually still have them in my office right now. They're called the big book of tell me why. And Hmm. I have a few volumes of of them and they're just pretty much like random encyclopedia type things, but you know, really pared down to um, just give you the gist of something. And I just found it fascinating. And I just wanted to know more about everything. (laughs) Um, And I just remember watching broadcast news and just being so enamored with the way they looked and the way they talked and the way they talked to people. And I mean, in Philadelphia, which is obviously a major media market, um, it, there was just always so much news coming out of it. And the local news was just something that people ate up so much, like, just so much. They were celebrities, you know, the newscasters right. were celebrities. One time we had, um, you know, some, I think it was third grade for me that ABC came to our school because our school had, um, was on strike. The teachers were on strike, like the first three weeks of the school year. And we finally went back to school and they were there. Like the news was there and it was just like such this amazing feeling that, oh my God, we're going to be on the news. We're going to be on the news. And I just wanted to be on the other end of that. You know, I wanted to be, you know, that person that made that for other people, that person to tell people's stories. And I think also at a very young age, I also read very early in life. And, um, I think I was, I was really drawn to writing and the way stories were told. Um, And I feel like even from a very young age, I could really see and acknowledge when there was like a good piece of writing in front of me because it really like made me feel something. And I, even now I feel my feelings very, very hard. And I did when I was a child. So I was always very taken with certain writing and taken by stories on the news. And it just, it just stayed with me. Mm, That's great. That's great. And I, again, I can sympathize with so much of that, uh, really. Uh, so when you went to Rowan, did you, did you go in with the expectation that you wanted to pursue TV news, print news? What were, what were your expectations when you started there? Uh, my expectations were that I was going to be a feature writer. and I wanted to write for Rolling Stone. And that's was my goal nice. when I was in high school, was to write for Rolling Stone. I, I had always had a subscription to it. I've always been obsessed with it. Uh, just yesterday, um, you know, since we're all over Zoom, uh, my team does like a theme, a theme every couple of weeks where, um, 
you know, just kind of like a team building thing. And it was my theme and it was to talk about a piece of journalism over your life that really affected you. And I talked about a 1997 article in Rolling Stone. Um, I was 14 years old. So Hmm. it's something that had stayed with me also. What was it about? What was the... It was called the story of John slash Joan. And it was about a, a boy... Um, who was born a twin, two boys, and they had a, his circumcision was botched and he became a candidate for an experimental surgery to, you know, turn him into a little girl. And Mm. it just absolutely fascinated me because it was something I'd never really heard of. And there was a line in there that I went back and I read it again this week because I I talked about it during our theme Thursday at work. And there was a line in there that said, transsexualism, which is obviously not a term we use now, transsexualism is usually the the fodder of daytime talk shows. And it just (laughs) made me laugh Mm. because it was like, wow, like that was really all we thought about back then in the 90s. And I'm sure before that too. Um, Right was, you know, if there was a, you know, what we call a transgender person now, you would just see that person on Oprah or on Mm -hmm. Sally Jesse Raphael, you know, I'm trying to think of who was around in the 90s. Um, So that, that story was just like absolutely, you know, fascinating to me. And I knew, but also I was, I loved music and I wanted, I thought I would be reviewing albums and writing about bands and writing cover stories for Rolling Stone. Um, and when I went into Rowan my freshman year, obviously my classes were very, you know, not in my major. Um, and the wit, you know, the, the school paper, I, did not <laughs> go to a wit meeting until mm. the last couple weeks of the school year because I was just nervous. Mm. I was nervous because I was a freshman and everyone else was cooler and smarter and older than me and better writers. Um, and I'm just very glad that I finally mustered up the the, the courage to go um, because then I was a, a huge part of the paper for the next three years. Um, and you know, it's still, it, it kind of changed. I still always wanted to to write features and I ended up writing features, but you know, the whole wanting to write for Rolling Stone, that kind of changed once I got more into news, like into mm. hard news. So how did, talk a little bit about how your time at Rowan shaped uh, your, you know, uh, both your understanding of journalism. So just from like an educational standpoint and also how it shaped uh, what you decided you wanted to pursue uh, as a career in journalism. So I, I think my time at Rowan and, 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 and some of your time, I'm sure, in college too, was, was at an interesting, uh, at an interesting time because everything was not quite online yet. Um, and it very quickly was, you know, just a couple of years after that. So but yeah. I think it was really the relationships that I formed with students who are still my friends now um, because we were all just so into different aspects of, of journalism and just taught each other so much. Um, 
I, you know, some of the classes that I took that I loved were, you know, magazine writing and feature writing. So that was definitely something that I was able to do a lot of. Um, was, uh, was Chick Harrison teaching magazine writing at the time? No, it was Deb, Deb Nussbaum. She, um, she was an adjunct. She's a writer for the New York Times magazine. I don't know if she still is, but she was back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found her work fascinating. And then I took a news class and I found the news fascinating. And I, I realized I, I liked a little bit of everything, but it was really my time working on the wit um, that really, I think, prepared me because there was just so many different things to cover, right? And we had our first week, I think, of my senior year, um, a student on campus die. And that really obviously shook the campus, um, but also kind of forced us to write about it journalistically. You know, we're not just writing our thoughts about somebody dying. We're like, we have to cover this in a way that's fair um, to our, you know, our audience. Um, The local news was obviously covering it, but we knew we were in a a unique position because of our access. and we actually ended up winning a um, New Jersey Press Association for College Award for for that story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I think all of my classes, I loved my time at Rowan. And it's funny because I don't use any of this right now, but taking, you know, publication layout and design class and learning Quark and learning InDesign basically got me my first job. Um mm-hmm which was at a weekly newspaper where I wrote every story and laid out the entire paper in Quark. And I remember at the interview, the last, you know, I checked all the boxes and the last one was, okay, do you know how to use Quark? And I said, actually, I'm very good at it. And then it was like, okay, hired. Um, So that, so it was called the Plain Dealer, uh, which covered Glassboro, actually, uh, Monroe Township and Pittman. Um, it's no longer around, but it was a, a, gr- a part of a group of weekly newspapers in South Jersey called um, South Jersey Intercounty Newspapers um, and part of uh, Journal Register Company, which uh, has um, publica- or had publications everywhere, mostly in Pennsylvania and Connecticut and New Jersey. Um, so yeah, I worked for a pay- my first job was actually a, a weekly here in Medford that was owned by JRC. Oh, that was, so wait, don't tell me the name of it. Um, <laughs> the sun, no, not the sun, not yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the central record. Yeah. Yes, Is that it? Yes. That's and it. That was the group that I worked for. Um, yeah, I was the editor of the plain dealer and then I became the executive editor um, you know, in charge of all of the papers, which mm. was a job I never should have had because I was so unqualified, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, but I had it. <laughs> right. Right. That's cool. So there might've been a, a, a period of time where you and I were actually working for the same company. That's pretty cool. I know that is cool. Um, is there, um, any particular, Moment. I mean, it's interesting, by the way. I meant to say, talking about uh, a, a death on on campus because my first year as faculty, as the advisor for the WIT, um, it was the spring semester, and there was a suicide on campus, mm-hmm. and 
And I remember thinking, oh my God, like this, I, this is my first year, you know, doing this. And, um, but it was, it was the same thing. Students, we would, I would talk to, to the editors and we had to have this very sort of measured approach for something that was incredibly emotional and, and the, you know, the whole campus and the community was, was really shaken up by this. And, but they had to actually make calls and do interviews. And we had so many interesting conversations about ethical considerations and stories like that. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I just bring that up to say like, I, I, I've had a similar experience, you know, yeah. all these years later. Well, I know that the student, the, the student journalists in the past few years have had to, you know, deal with that at Rowan too. Um, like some of the, you know, just awful things that, that were happening and, you know, a big mental health crisis at Rowan as well and all, all colleges right. across the country, you know. So um, I commend those student journalists, um, you know, for for doing that's a perfect example of living it and working it right you know these right. are people they may have known these are people they had classes with or lived in the same dorm as and and now they're covering it for the paper so you know they had to compartmentalize as well i'm sure right right and that's a, a very just uh, i think an invaluable experience in preparing you for for the things that can come your way um as as a journalist and um yeah, I, I, it was, it was as challenging as it was rewarding to see how they did it. And I think we might have, we, I think we might've won some kind of an award for that. I can't, I can't actually remember, but, um, but that's secondary. Uh, I, I was curious besides that particular moment, are there any other stories that stand out from your time at Rowan that you look back on and you think, wow, I really sort of something clicked for me, uh, as a journalist or some, some sort of experience that, uh, was impactful for you? So I think when I was still very much, I was a features editor at one point and we had a lot of, you know, people come to, to school. Like I remember Dave Chappelle came and gave a, uh, oh, wow. stand up. Yeah. He was there one year and I was just really fascinated with all, all of that. Um, we, who else did we have? We had Dave Attell, comedian Dave Attell, and we had a couple concerts on campus with a couple big bands at the time. I think one of them was, you know, say anything. And these are bands that people were really into it. I was just, right. And still am very much into, you know, obviously music, movies and pop culture um, and celebrity culture. It's just something I'm just very interested in and it's kind of, you know, my vice in a way. Um, uh -huh. So when those people came, I was so excited to cover them because I knew how many people at school were excited to have them there. And I said, well, I can be that link between them and, and this, mm. you know, and this person. So that really like kind of inspired me, um, to do, I remember in my senior year, um, um, Hunter S Thompson died and that was a big thing for, uh, you know, a student journalist at the time he died, mm. I think early into my senior year and we did a series of stories about that and that was kind of like 
very inspiring because it was somebody who I always, you know, liked as an author, as the gonzo journalism movement. I was very much into, you know, beat writers and the whole counterculture movement. Um, And then when that happened, it kind of brought it home a, a little bit because of all these other journalists who I worked with at the paper who were affected by it as well. Um, and we, I think we like dedicated pages to it. We wrote like letters to Hunter S. Thompson. We, we posted them. Um, I, I think we held like a, a vigil the night that he died, but wow. it was just like such a camaraderie, you know, and it was like somebody who we all kind of aspired to be like, to be an author, to be a, a journalist. So that was, that was a really big, you know, part as well. You know, my, mm. my, my freshman year was, um, nine 11 and I was not working for the wit. So I can only imagine how the students who were juniors and seniors, um, felt during that time. Um, because for me it, it was, it, you know, I, I didn't have that. I was very much just like feeling that myself rather than you know, working it. Mm -hmm. So, um, that always, you know, made me wonder, you know, if, if I had been a little bit older, how we would have tackled that, that subject, you know, at a college paper. Yeah. I, um, 9-11 was my junior year and I, I wasn't actually involved with, I went to Temple, uh, in Philly and Mm -hmm. wasn't involved with their newspaper at all. And, and really wasn't, I was, uh, at the time, majoring in film and English. And, um, and so I didn't have to, yeah, I didn't have to put on any sort of like journalistic hat during September 11th, right. but I remember thinking about the journalists who were covering it and thinking how just, I, I mean, you talk about, um, like having to compartmentalize I, that, that just, mm-hmm. it still strikes me. I still will go back every once in a while and watch old, you know, old news coverage, breaking news coverage of that day. And just think, how did they, how did they hold it together? How, <laughs> I just, it was so. A lot of them um, didn't. <laughs> a, right. a lot of them didn't, you know, and that's, yep. that's okay. That's okay. We talk about that so much now, so much now, you know, that's actually a really big, really big part of life at the AP these days is um, since the pandemic started, we have you know, bi-weekly and now I guess now monthly like coping sessions. Um, and you know, just how hard it is to cover these events like the pandemic and like, you know, racial injustice and like the insurrection and like the, you know, the election that really just mentally can affect us as, as journalists. And, um, Mm -hmm. that's one thing I'm really proud that the AP has been doing is, offering that, that space for journalists to, to, to share and to yell or cry or whatever it right. is that you need to do. Yeah. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to have the luxury that in the spring uh, and going into the summer when, when things were at their just scariest and most unknown and mysterious, um, that, you know, I was teaching, I still had to, you know, it was basically, I was doing YouTube lectures and and having Mm -hmm. my students, uh, I hadn't yet figured out how to do synchronous zooms or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but aside from that, I I didn't have any journalistic work at the time. And so I had the luxury of being able 
I, I kind of went on a, a media blackout for a little bit because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it was just too overwhelming. It was really like, mm-hmm. and, and emotionally overwhelming in a way that I, I think I'm still kind of processing, <laughs> not, not to mm-hmm. turn this into a, you know, a psychoanalysis session, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I still, I'm still like unpacking some of the stuff from, from like March, April and May. Um, and this is all coming back to an actual question, I swear. Um, I'm curious how you, because you still had to work, right? You still had yeah. to to do your job. And in those early months uh, of the pandemic in particular, how uh, what was that like for you um, as a working journalist? And how did you kind of get through that? I don't know how I got through it. Um, it was awful. It was, it was absolutely terrible. Um, and I made no qualms about that. (laughs) I was very vocal about it. And I think that's what really kind of got me and others through that was making sure that we were talking about it. Um, I remember (laughs) a couple weeks before the day, you know, like before that one day, which was when president Trump announced the travel ban, it was the same day that the NHL and the NBA announced they were, um, shutting down. Um, and it was the same day that we found out Tom Hanks had coronavirus. And that was kind of like the day for me. But I remember, you know, we had been hearing about the virus for the week, weeks before that. And again, that, that excitement I talked about earlier was there. I just remember like having friends over like a couple weeks before that and, th- and just like looking at them and saying like, listen, this is going to change the world. Like, do you realize that? But I was saying it in such an excited way. And little did I know, like just a month later, I would be <laughs> crying about it every day. So, um, you know, and I think a big reason was things were happening so fast. Um, you know, we reported on the right. first case, we reported on the first death. And then a couple of weeks later, we reported on the, you know, there were 150, 200 deaths. And a month after that, there were 400 deaths a day. So it was just, it was crazy. Um, I had a routine. I, I, I had a routine where I, I mean, I barely slept. I started early. My stomach was in knots all the time. I think I lost like 10 or 12 pounds during the first couple Mm -hmm. of months. Um, and a lot of times I was just kind of sitting at my computer in disbelief, but knowing that I I had to, there were things that I, I just had to do. But, you know, when I talked a little bit ago about how we respond to breaking news and kind of process it later, there wasn't really a time for this. This was just so impactful that I couldn't quite jump into the news. And I remember thinking that there were journalists who were jumping into the news and I was grateful for them because it meant I didn't have to as much. Hmm. Um, Obviously the pandemic was in the beginning, um, New Jersey was hit the hardest, you know, the North Jersey area as part of the greater New York Metro. And our New York editor was, just in full journalist mode. And I was just remember being so grateful for that because it meant that I didn't have to be. Um, Mm. I felt kind of like I slept walk through the day um, and dreaded 2 p.m. each day because that's when the governors gave the daily press conferences. Right, right. And 
all we were listening for were the numbers. And I had a notebook and in the notebook, I was just writing down the deaths from one day to the next and just like looking at the numbers. And I remember if one day was 50 less than the day before, I felt a relief. (laughs) Um, But then the next day it would be up by another 75 and then all that like doom and gloom would come back. Um, I kept my husband home from work. I told him, please don't go to work. I don't feel safe with you. I can't, I just mentally couldn't handle it. So he stayed home. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was on the phone with my parents, I don't know, three times a day, making sure they were okay and saying, please don't go anywhere. Um, So yeah, I, 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 I don't know how I got through it. I just, I wrote every night, um, kind of keeping a, a journal of sorts. Um, if only for posterity and Mm -hmm. talked to my colleagues all the time. I mean, we had, you know, FaceTime sessions every day. Um, the turning point for me was when one of my colleagues died from the virus. Um, and that was the worst day. I didn't, I had worked with him in the past, but I didn't know him, um, I think I edited a couple of his stories before, but he was working in New York um, and I had been working in New York and he was in a different, he was in a different um, department, but I knew who he was and my colleagues were, you know, we all worked together and some of my good friends at work were good friends with him. And it was just this helpless feeling when we heard about it and we're all talking about it over zoom, (laughs) you know, we're not in the same room. Um, to me that felt like the low point. And then after that, I felt as if we hit the low point, you know, and Mm -hmm. at least for me, and I felt like a tiny bit better each day. Um, the journalism from that time was amazing. But honestly, I can't say that I had a huge role in that because I couldn't even really think straight. And the biggest stories were coming out of New York during the time. So I did have a say in those stories and an opinion. But um, the writers who jumped in, the photographers, the videographers, really, really did an, uh, I mean, enormously magnificent job. Um you know, covering this. And I think those of us who it was affecting a little bit more mentally, we're just so grateful for that. Um, Mm. But at the same time, hoping that they were getting the, you know, addressing any mental health concerns that they had as well. So this really just opened up a whole talk about being a journalist and, and mental health that we still have today. And I think that we will have forever, you know, um, right. Yeah. So I, I think that's a, a good thing that came out of it. Yeah. I, I, I can empathize with so many of the, th- you know, the thoughts you just shared that, that, that feeling of, of sort of sleepwalking mm-hmm. through the day. Um, it, it's, there were times when I would come into my office to record, like I said, video lectures for my classes and had to like, I remember sometimes I would just zone out. I would just look out. I, my, my office faces this really beautiful field behind my house. And, and I would just sit there and, you know, 10 minutes would go by, 15 minutes would go by and I'm like, Oh, come you know, snap out of it. And I would have to like Mm -hmm. really sort of, 
okay, you know, psych myself up to record these lectures. And, um, yeah, it, it was, it was really rough. Um, I think the burden, like you, you mentioned that you did a, um, a blackout, like a media, so social media blackout or a news blackout. And, and, and I know so many people who did, and I was, I was angry because I couldn't do that. Mm. I, I, I couldn't turn it off. I, I, it was my job, you know, um, I turned it off as much as I could, but you know, from morning until evening, you know, I was glued, I was plugged into it and I, you know, cause I, cause I had to be, and you know, I, would, right. I saw and heard things that my friends and family didn't, um, because I was so plugged in, I felt like I had this knowledge that they didn't have and that I didn't know what to do with it. So that's why I've relied so heavily on my colleagues because they were the only ones who could, who understood what was happening. Right. Yeah. And again, like I say, I, I, I see it as a, as a real like luxury that I was able to do that. Um, and, and it was, it was immensely helpful when I, I remember I think it started with Twitter. I was like, I, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm not going to Twitter. Uh, and you know, and then other forms of media, uh, I just, yeah, like I said, I kind of blacked them out and yeah. it was, it did noticeably improve my mental health. Um, and I remember reflecting on that with my wife saying like, you know, I actually, it was like the end of a week and I'm like, you know, this whole week I haven't really consumed news. And I was like, I feel a lot better. Yeah. And that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it really was. Um, I, I'm curious if there were conversations and I know you, you, you know, you were saying you weren't necessarily too involved in like the, the you know, the reporting of, of things at that time, but did you have any conversations about how to balance the, uh, the reporting of something like the pandemic with Mm -hmm. uh, our audience's mental health, you know, like how, how much do we, we throw at them? What's, what's that line between like information and, and like, uh, inciting panic or depression? Like were those kinds of conversations taking place at that time? So that's an interesting question. I, they, they were, but not maybe in the way that, that, that you're thinking. I mean, the AP has a whole mis and disinformation team. So they were kind of working overtime because there were just so, there was just so much misinformation out there. Um, we knew that this was the biggest story of our lives and careers in the century, you know? So we knew that we were covering the hell out of it. And we knew that it was, you know, our, our, um, our goal and, as a news collective, as a, as a news organization to put out as much stuff as possible. Um, because it was getting read and people were sharing it and reading it. And for, you know, there were people who were, you know, unplugging and turning it off, but there were even more people who were constantly plugged into it and reading every last thing. So we knew that we had an obligation to cover every single aspect of it. Um, so there weren't the, the, the conversations around, you know, were mostly around misinformation and saying, okay, we have an obligation not only to give people the news, but we have an obligation to 
tell people what what's not news. Um, and that obviously mm-hmm. continued all throughout election time and it's, uh, you know, and, um, but really, really got started, you know, really, really got started during, you know, the beginning of the Trump presidency, but, you know, definitely ramped up so much more during the pandemic. Um, and what we talked about was giving people information in different ways because we knew that, so we did know that people, you know, may not be sitting down and reading a 900, uh, word story. So we were thinking of other ways to give people the information. We did a lot of video packages. We did a mm-hmm. lot of photo essays. Um, we did a lot of Q and A's and like explainers. Um, you know, we have a whole section on our, we still do it now. We have a whole section on our website where it was just like asking a question and answering it for people. Like how, like in the early days, it was like, how effective is a coronavirus test? You know, when will a vaccine come? You know, just these like kind of short hits because we knew people were on such overload, but maybe still wanted, you know, the information. And I remember hearing from friends and family saying, I don't even know where to turn because there's just so much out there. And I said, yeah. So I, I, I gave them the advice that I would, I always gave everyone, which was, you know, pick two or three news, news organizations you like and trust and, and kind of stick with them. Um, so you know, I, I very much was involved very much in the coverage of the virus, but, um, you know, it kind of moved around, right. Originally it was in, I think the first outbreak was in Washington and Seattle. Um, and then it moved over to, to New York and, um, it was the city that people were most interested in, even though the numbers were super high in places like Bergen County and in North Jersey, it was the city itself. It was Brooklyn. It was Queens where these stories were coming out of, where there were these, you know, um, trucks of, you know, morgues, like traveling morgues, um, where people heard sirens all day, every day, all day, every day, you know, living in the city. So we had meetings every single day, every single day with our, me and our New York team about where we're going next. And again, so grateful for our new New York yeah. editor who 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 had so many more ideas than I did. Um, you know, especially in in the very beginning. So so you know, and to, you, to go ahead. Well, I was going to say were you also were there other stories that you were covering? I mean, <laughs> at that time? Um, not really. Uh, breaking news. Yes. Like news, other things that were happening, but everything else kind of was put on the back burner. It really was. And, um, multiple in those first couple of months. Right. Right. Um, in those first couple of months, um, we were just so honed in on this. Um, obviously, I mean, crime went down, you know, crime had gone down. So there, there, there wasn't like kind of that stuff to, to write about. Um, but as far as like bigger enterprise stories, all of that got put on the back burner. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this made me talking about pandemic coverage and and you mentioned, the the Trump presidency and uh, I I'm curious to get your thoughts on that in and of itself you know if it was 
if um, if we only had to think about what it was like to live through the last four years, and and I don't mean that purely in in a pejorative sense about Trump specifically, but all of the all of the adjacent stuff that came with that, um, you know, that in and of itself would have mm-hmm. been a, a, just a, a really intense thing to to live through. Um, and I'd like to to get your thoughts on the last four years of the Trump presidency, because you started, you said, was it 20, uh, sorry for the dates here, 2015. 2015, was, uh, right. Right. So, you know, right there on the cusp uh, of the Trump presidency, I'm curious if there were conversations about, well, let me put it this way. I've always, I've always sort of seen the AP as one of the most dispassionate places to get news. And I mean that in a good way. I I think, I mean, that it feels, um, very well, yeah, dispassionate, uh, and, and isn't really Mm -hmm. cluttered with a lot of, um, ideology and and things that you get, a lot of the noise you get from so many other outlets. What was it like to, and I, I'm assuming you agree with that. That's, that's a pretty accurate description. Like oh, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I, you know, absolutely. Oh, always thought that even before working here, I mean, just, just one of the most neutral and, and impartial news organizations in the world. Yeah. So, so you're uniquely positioned, I think, to answer this question, which is how, how you sort of spent the Trump presidency, those four years maintaining that when I think the, 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 there was a, a great pull, and I and I could see the the shift in in some other large media organizations that kind of responded to this uh, like unspoken um, urgency to infuse a certain degree of ideology in uh, in their reporting, and that it, because it felt so important, because mm-hmm. it felt like you know, the, the institutions around us, you know, somehow that journalism needed to protect those institutions. Um, so how, how did, how did you maintain that sort of very just dispassionate down the middle ethos of the AP at a time when I'm sure there was a lot of, of temptation or pull to go in some sort of ideological direction, even if it was just, just faintly. So I think that that's a huge challenge. And I think that what we think is being dispassionate, others might think is being biased. And and I think it's because a good amount of readers and audience, like our audience, not just AP's audience, it's just news consumers and people in general, you know, if they don't like something, they may not believe it. I think we realized pretty quickly that we knew that this was going to be an administration like no other. So we had an obligation to cover it that way. Um, Nothing changed in the approach of nobody went in saying, oh, well, this is going to be a circus or nobody went in thinking any of that. I mean, we assigned people to cover stories that they would normally, whoever was in, in, in office. But it, it became pretty clear that we had to devote resources to certain areas, right? Um, all throughout the Trump presidency, he, he'd ha- he held rallies. 
um, especially right after he was elected, um, he went on sort of a victory lap, you know? So that was something that we never really had to do, you know, (laughs) which was, Mm -hmm. you know, staff these, these rallies and fact check, you know, everything that he was saying. And, and, and I will say this, our fact check team really did, um, you know, as far as, as far as fact checking the presidency, it goes back to the Clinton administration. Um, and, uh, we had always done fact checks on anything, you know, during a presidential debate or do, during a major speech. So the reason there were so many more during the Trump administration was just overall Trump talked more, made more appearances. And, um, there were so many things that, that, that just were misleading or false. Um, and I think that's why all, you know, news organizations kind of, kind of got a bad rap because it felt as if, oh, you're just talking about the bad stuff. And it's like, well, well, no, we're not. We're talking about all the stuff. It just happens to be that the quote unquote bad stuff is the biggest stuff. Um, so I mean, I never, never saw any instance of any of our reporters or editors, like having any bias at all in their reporting. And we, knew that we couldn't really normalize this presidency and we couldn't really normalize this president, especially after, you know, he, during, after Charlottesville, he said they were, you know, very good people when he called, um, you know, countries, shithole countries, you know, and we had an obligation to report that in a way that's, Showing that it's sensational, not because, you know, we're biased and we think it's crazy, but just because it is so unlike any president and trying not to normalize that behavior. So it's a very fine line between somebody reading that and appreciating the fact that we are talking about it as honestly as we are. And then somebody thinking that we're, we're being biased. And that's been the biggest thing to overcome, you know, in the past Mm -hmm. four or five years. Um, I mean, that's our goal every single day, every single Mm day. Um, and, and also, and, and just like more succinctly to your, to your question, um, we have amazing editors and a lot of different editors who read stories before they hit the wire um and any editorializing or any opinion would be filtered out you know there were things where i thought you know what i think using these adjectives that were just editorial editorializing a little too much let's pick up something different so Mm. you know i i never saw such professionalism you know at, at work regardless of what anyone might think personally all of that is completely left at the door before you mm. walk into that office. Um, I, 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 I really appreciate that. I think that's, um, that's a, a really great perspective. Uh, and, and it now makes me think, um, here I am connecting sort of your past to, to your present that it's, it's interesting to think about your early days, uh, you know, Hunter S. Thompson and mm-hmm. almost famous and, and, uh, you know, being drawn to a style of journalism that invites, uh, a lot more 
not necessarily editorializing, but even just um, personality and, you know, niche perspective. You know, magazine mm-hmm. writing is much more, uh, you know, not forgiving, but it, it invites that, you know, in many respects. And how mm-hmm. you got mm-hmm. from from being so drawn to that genre of journalism to now being really at, at the opposite end of that spectrum where you're now, you know, involved in this, like we keep using this word, but this sort of very dispassionate pursuit of journalism. Um, what, you know, what's the connective tissue there? I, I, I don't really know. I, I, so in my high school journalism class, um, my editor, my teacher at the time, he always knew that I wanted to, you know, write for Rolling Stone. And a few years later, when I was working at the Plain Dealer at that weekly newspaper, I was, like I was saying earlier, I was going to school board meetings and zoning board meetings and planning board meetings. And what really, what really, um, inspired me during those were just how much those seemingly mundane things affected people's everyday life. So I think I looked at it at a way where it was like, okay, I'm reading this, you know, cover story about, you know, whatever band. And, and it was kind of like a dreamy thing, you know, it was, it was, you know, my favorite band is Radiohead. And I remember reading, just consuming as much as I could in every magazine about the band. Um, and and it was just this this dreamy type of dream thing, dream, not a goal. And it was romantic, you know? And then I realized that there's very real things happening in my own backyard that affect people's day-to-day life, that affect people how they live day-to-day and not, you know, when they're sitting at home listening to a record or when they're just like winding down watching TV at the end of the day. So that just really struck me. And I remember going back to my high school journalism class to talk about it. And my teacher, it was the same teacher. And he was looking at me and smiling like while I was talking. And I said, why are you looking at me like that? And, and he said, and he called me by my last name. He says, Pacciola, you wanted to write for Rolling Stone magazine and you are sitting here talking about zoning board meetings and how much you like going to them. And I said, I still love Rolling Stone magazine. I still love it. But I found that I was good at writing about this stuff. And I was getting, I think it's really the feedback. I think it's, you know, when you get a letter from somebody that says, um, you know, thank you for writing about this event we had at our school, you know, when you see your, your, your article cut out of the paper and hung up somewhere, it's just this like sense of pride and coming from a small town. you know, where kind of everybody knows everybody else. It's, it's just this, this, this prideful thing that, that, that I was feeling and grateful that I could bring this to people when they weren't getting it anywhere else. You know, it's like, I have this specific knowledge, this skill set of knowing about tax rates and knowing about, you know, budgets and, and, school tax and how all of that works. And, and, and it was just very fascinating to me that I could be the one to relay that information to people. I, I, I totally, totally get that. It was my, when I was at the central record, um, from my, my, my two years there, um, I, 
was my beat was Mount Laurel. And mm-hmm. for the first time in my entire life, I had to go to a township council meeting. I had to go to a school board meeting. And just after a few of those, um, I started to have that same exact revelation. Like, wow, this is where people's lives are really being most affected. You know, I thought, <laughs> right. and it was, and it, and it started to strike me that I would go to, uh, you know, a Mount Laurel township council meeting. It would be the same, you know, two or three, probably 65 plus, you know, people in attendance. And unless, right. there, unless there was some, <laughs> right. you know, unless there was some real hot button issue at play. Some issue. Right, right, right. right. Um, and usually the irony there was that by the time there was a, a bunch of people in the room, it was sometimes too late for anything to, to actually change. Um, and and I, I would start talking to people and say, you know, why aren't people attending their council meetings? We're obsessed with, you know, presidential yeah. <laughs> elections and, and federal level news. Um, we can't get enough of it. But really, by the t- you know, that stuff trickles down to everyday life. Whereas here on the, you know, really micro level is where, you know, your taxes are affected, your services, public works, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So yeah, I, 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 I had, a, had a very similar, yeah, uh, revelation. Yeah, you, you get it. Up- and, and those of us who worked in, in hyper local news, you know, hyper, hyper local news feel that way, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it underscores the, uh, the really, you know, just tragic, um, erosion of, hyperlocal news. And I feel it in a way that mm-hmm. I try to express to my students, but it's there. I, you know, I'm now teaching students who didn't really grow up with or don't remember the importance of a local paper like the central record. And, and it's hard mm-hmm. to get them to feel that loss and why that, you know, why that loss is, is so unfortunate. And because it, it truly is, it, it, and I know this is not a hot take. Everybody, like everyone in journalism is talking about this, has been talking about this for <laughs> years, but um, I really would love, there was, I'm trying to remember what podcast it was. Um, it might've been The Daily. They did a piece a few months back mm-hmm. about this this guy who tried to, and he tried to create this like hyper-local news network, um, but it turned out he was using either fake bylines or, you know, outsourcing bylines to people in other countries. Does this ring a bell? Did you, is the, is the daily on your radar? Do you ever? No, I, I mean, I've, I, I, I don't listen to every daily podcast. Um, but I, I don't recall that one in particular now. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link to it. It's cause it really touches on so many of these things. Um, did you, at any point in your, in your career, did you get the opportunity to do some long form magazine style writing? Um, um, not in, not in the sense that I always like thought that I would, you know, like I definitely reported on a lot of things that interested me. You know, when I was working for the plane dealer, I could write literally anything that I wanted. And I think that, that, you know, writing that hard news, you know, coming out of these council meetings, writing about, you know, state news. And then I, you know, worked at the Gloucester County Times for a period and was the county reporter there. So it was like even bigger audience. Um, But I always wrote like a column, you know, I always felt like I needed like my voice out there somehow. And, you know, I wrote a daily or excuse me, a weekly column at the Plain Dealer and a weekly column at the Gloucester County Times where I would just talk about something in the news and just 
you know, muse on it, you know, cause I, I, I like to be funny and I like to talk about fun things and not always be so serious. So that was kind of like my, my outlet. Um, at, when I, I also worked for patch and I'm sure you're familiar oh, with mm-hmm. patch. Um, so for those who don't know is AOL started these hyper local news websites. Um, that was right up my alley. And I was one of the editors, um, actually of the town I grew up in, in Cinnamons in New Jersey. And, um, you know, not necessarily a big town. I think there's about, mm-hmm. you know, 15, 20,000 people there, but it became <laughs> one of the biggest patch sites in the state, in the tri-state because of the level of engagement. And that, gave me a little more freedom knowing I had so many report or so many people reading to write about some like more, you know, fun stuff I wanted to write about. Um, but I never really went super long with my writing until I started freelancing for, and I think you used to work here too at South Jersey magazine. Um, uh, yeah. 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 So I, when were you freelancing for, for South Jersey? For several years. I interned there in 2005 and I'd written on and off from 2005 just until like, like last year. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, in the past several years, it was maybe like one story a year or so. Um, yeah, I'm curious because I was, I was, um, managing editor there. Uh, yeah. 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 I can't remember what stretch it was like two years. Um, yeah. I, 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 so I, I worked mostly with, I can't even remember who it was originally. Um, I cannot remember her name for the life of me, but in, Laura? Was it um, Laura Barrett? Uh, Laura Barrett was my boss when I was the intern, but she was not the one I worked with when I, when I freelanced after I graduated college. Um, but most recently I had been working with Julie Shannon, who also went to Rowan and, um, she had given me uh, a bunch of stories. And I think one I wrote in just in 2019 was about the revitalization of Camden. And that was a really long story for me and something I could chip away at over the course of several weeks and was very fun for me to do because I could talk to so many different people and it was more of a news feature. So no, I'm not writing a, a band profile uh-huh. um, or anything like that, but it really like you know, um, brought me out of the, the hard news bubble for a little bit and just to write about something that's newsy, but also, you know, very kind of light and, and positive and featurey. So, um, that was an out, a good outlet for me for a long time. Wow. Uh- <laughs> The, the, the concentric circles of our experiences uh, is just uh, <laughs> yeah. uncanny because I finished, um, I, I had a piece published in New Jersey Monthly. Uh, it mm-hmm. came out in November, but I really spent the, the summer working on it. And it was a, a deep dive into Camden and, ah. um, you know, it's various aspects of revitalization, what's working, what's not. Um, because I was actually hearing from a lot of folks during, uh, during the summer, uh, and a lot of the calls to mm-hmm. disband the police, right. To, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the phrase mm-hmm. that they were actually using. And, and I would see these news stories in, you know, the national defund. and yeah. defund the police. Right. And I was starting to see stories in mm-hmm. national and, and international outlets saying, uh, you know, Camden's already done that. And I had written Camden kind of became a de facto beat for me as a freelancer 
for New Jersey Monthly because I did a profile on the former mayor. I did a big piece when they did change the police force, you know, to a county force. And so I knew it really well. And I thought, I don't know, is that really accurate? Like, you know, the LA Times had this big story about how Camden yeah. <laughs> defunded the police. And I was like, ah, they got a lot of stuff wrong. And, and I just felt like, you know, this is a time for me to jump back into Camden and revisit it. And, um, yeah, that was an incredibly fulfilling experience. I, I, it's hard. I mean, doing that kind of long form, yeah. you know, explanatory feature stuff is not easy, but when you come out the other side, it's, um, I find it to be very rewarding and I was very, very happy with how that piece turned out. Yeah, no, that sounds great. That sounds great. I, I think my, mine was more like the businessy side of it, like working for the, um, what was the, what's the business magazine that was associated with it? Like, um, South, I guess it was South Jersey biz was a part of South right, Jersey yeah, magazine. Yeah. So, I mean, I did a lot just for South Jersey magazine proper, um, about, I, I remember one of my stories I wrote about, um, pets, people who brought pets into the office. Um, hmm. and it was so fun to write something like that. And I mean, did you grow up here, like in South Jersey? Oh yeah, yeah. Born you and did. raised okay, in you, Medford. You said that, so you know the old like music store tunes, and yeah. um, tunes always like I think it was the one in 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 Voorhees that had a cat there, and it was just something that everyone always talked about was the the cat at tunes who would just walk around. And, um, that was kind of like turned into a story idea about other people who bring their pets to work. <laughs> so, um, cool. these were the type of stories that I really enjoyed writing. And after the last one for Camden in 2019, um, you know, and with my position now, I can't, I can't really do that, you know, anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know I try to, I, I, I try to do, um, as much freelancing as I can throughout the year, but, um, it, my, my work with Rowan has just become so encapsulating that I, I don't I'm get sure. to do as much of it as, as I would like. I, and that's why it's usually like a, a summer, you know, I'll do something in the, in the summer, like I did with, uh, with the Camden piece. Um, I love that cat, cat anecdote though, because I, I, one of the <laughs> courses that I've been teaching my whole time at Rowan for the last 11 years is magazine article writing. And, yeah. um, and right now we're, I'm talking to my students about, you know, how do you get ideas and what makes a good magazine idea as opposed to a newspaper or what, you know, a news website idea. And I always tell them that it's like, start with curiosity, start with just, it could be something that anyone else might find to be just sort of a mundane, uh, you know, something mm -hmm. mundane and cutesy. But if you're wearing your journalist hat, you know, you see a cat in a record store and then you think, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if there are other places that you know, where pets can come to work or where, you know, and, and it just sort of snowballs. And I, I just think that's really great. I'm going to share that with, uh, yeah, absolutely. my students next week. It's that, that really is like a, a very good skill to have, which is just like always kind of keeping an eye out for things, um, like that and thinking, Hmm, like what's a bigger story that I can tell about that thing. And that's honestly, that's my job every day, you know, is to, mm -hmm you know, work with a reporter when they come to me with something and I say, well, let's take a step back and how can, you know, we make that idea even grander. So it's, it's definitely, um, a good skill to have, but also something that can be honed, you know, it's not something just innate, like that's definitely something that can be learned just by, you know, continuing to read and write and, and talk to people. Oh, absolutely. It's a huge, I, um, I'll share this quick story with you that I share with my magazine class when we talk about this. And it's, it was my 
probably first six months at the central record. And I was still living at my parents' house. And I remember one night it was like, I don't know, midnight or something. And, um, a police officer knocked on our door and I, I went to the top of the steps and my mom was talking to him and, and then eventually he left and I said, well, what was that all about? And she said, there was apparently some sort of domestic disturbance and somebody ran away from their home and was in the area and they were asking people permission to search uh, their properties to, to look for this person. And we, we also had this big uh, eight stall barn on our property and they wanted to know if they could go in there. And I was like, oh, wow, that's fascinating. And the next day I'm talking to my editors at the newspaper and I tell them this story. And my one editor said, well, what did you do? Then what did you do after that? And I said, oh, I went to bed. And he's like, way to be a real cutting edge journalist, Nick, you know, a cop knocks on your door at midnight (laughs) searching for someone and you went to bed and we laughed and he wasn't being a jerk about it, but it was my first realization that, oh, I'm, I need to think differently. I need to sort of change my perception Mm -hmm. of the world and, you know. Uh, and, and, and that doesn't necessarily come naturally. And it is something that you wind up having to refine over time. Absolutely. And I mean, think of all of what we have at our disposal now, social media, like, I mean, we get so many ideas just from Facebook and Twitter and what people are talking about. I mean, especially, especially, uh, locally, like even we were trying to think of, um, feature stories that comes out of the pandemic because everything was just so doom and gloom, you know? So around Halloween time, I saw that a woman who lived, you know, the next town over from me had constructed like, um, uh, something on her railing, you know, to put candy down like a candy shoot. So the kids didn't have to come up to the door. And she ended up becoming part of like a larger story about like the pandemic and Halloween and, you know, how we're approaching it this year. So, I mean, mm, it's just, yeah. it, it, it just all can like kind of snowball into something else. Totally. If he's not on your radar, you should, I, I interviewed on Tuesday, another, uh, alum for this podcast. Uh, his name's Matteo Iadonisi. And, he only graduated two years ago um, mm. from Rowan, but he's been working for 6ABC for the last two years producing um, these short, like 90 minute, 90 minute, 90 second um, feature videos. And he does one every day and they're all oh. focused on uh, positive stories, good news. But it's also not, it's not like the sort of like uh, saccharine and overly sentimental stuff that I think you, that I at least expect sometimes from like local news, local news. Yeah. Right. His stuff is much more like organic and it feels it's, it's much more akin to like a a sort of NPR or, you know, this American life type approach to these pieces and he, and they're visually stunning. Um, and he just finished his 500th piece for six ABC and yeah. And they air them every night. Um, anyway, just putting him out there. On, yeah, on the radar. I would really absolutely check that. I probably have seen it, but didn't make the connection with, with the name, but, um, yeah, yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many different media out there. There's just so many different ways to tell a story. And I mean, we're just constantly, you know, just amending that to, you know, whatever works for, for an audience. Like even at the AP, we do podcasts and we do video and, you know, um, every place kind of has to, has to do that now to bring people, you know, the news in, in, in different ways. Right. Do you, do do you have your hand in any sort of digital content for AP, uh, in, in that respect? Um, no, 
so a couple of years ago, our leadership in our individual regions restructured um, because we always had a text person at the top of, you know, of the regions. Like as your regional director, it was a text person um, and that our visual folks um, were in a different, you know, different hierarchy. They're in different. It's like, oh, the visual folks are over here. And like we were learning that, you know, stories are not just text, stories are, are everything. So we really need to have that leadership represented um, in the, that photo and that video leadership represented the same way that text is. Um, so that's something that the AP transitioned to just a couple of years ago. So every time on my planning calls and on our daily calls every single day, there's always, you know, our video editor and our, our photo editor. So my approach to stories and when I hear a story pitch from somebody has definitely changed in the fact that I'm not only thinking about what story we can write, but I'm thinking about what photos we can make and what video we can make. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but we do have an audio team and we do have a podcast team, but I have not yet um, you know, been able to work closely with them yet. I would love to. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But, and my reporters have in, in some ways, you know, some of my, some of my text reporters are also video, uh, video journalists. And I know when during the uh, Bill Cosby trial, you know, some of our Philadelphia reporters also did, did a weekly podcast. So, um, you know, the AP is a little different than say the Washington Post or the New York Times, whereas, you know, we're working for our members and, um, you know, we're mostly a B to B instead of a B to C, you know, we are that business to business, but we're mm. realizing that we have to be a little bit more business to consumer and, you know, adding these other tools, uh, in there is, you know, something that we've been doing more and more each year. Right. Yeah. And this is something, you know, in terms of the difference between the wit when you were there and the wit now mm-hmm. is we, we have that same sort of, uh, concern or approach like okay we're not just telling this is this is no longer just a uh, a paper that has written stories we we have to you know i'll I'll tell Mm -hmm. the editors now i'll say when you assign a story if you if you're assigning a a writer to go cover an event or what have you you know see if one of our multimedia folks can tag along and get uh, sort of a short video of that or or at the very least um have the writer who's covering it you know take out their phone and gather some additional type of media. It's more work, of course, um, but it's something that really is incumbent on us to, to do these days. Um, it so something definitely that, is, and we do the same. We do the same. Yeah. So something that I've been asking everybody, and I'm very mindful of your time, and we'll be wrapping up very soon, um, but I, something that I'm asking all of the folks that I have on the podcast is – uh, how has being a journalist uh, differed from what you thought it was going to be like when you were a journalism student at Rowan? Hmm. I think it exceeds my expectations. Um, I always thought that this would be a cool job to have, you know, just something that's like, kind of hip and cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um and where I am now, I feel that even more. Honestly, I never thought I would 
be at the AP, you know, and, you know, regardless of me thinking I was going to be like, you know, a features writer, when I really started getting hyper local news, I really kind of felt myself there. Um, and, you know, maybe even like starting my own thing after a while. Um, I, you know, I was into broadcast at one point, but I, I knew that, I don't know if that was really the goal. Um, I think that once I got to the AP, I realized, wow, this is just like totally exceeding any kind of goal or expectation I set out for myself in college or even like right after college and never really thought that I would have been qualified. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I always have been somebody who thought I was fooling everybody. Um, um, and when I got to the, like that imposter syndrome, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that is a big part. Um, but for me, when I got to the AP, I just like, I felt like I was home you know, and I am surrounded every day by people who are so ridiculously smart. And, you know, it's always said, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> um, <laughs> and when I got to the AP, I realized like, all right, I'm in the right room. You know, I'm learning so much from these people. So, you know, just from, from my college days until now, it totally exceeded. I am just so, so proud to be an AP journalist. And at the end of the day, I always think, wow, like I really have a cool job that, that I love. Oh, that's great. That's, that's so great to hear. And so in terms of when you, when you look forward, um, is this where you see yourself and doing this type of work for the foreseeable future? Absolutely. Um, yeah, the AP just has so many, you know, opportunities and you know even even now like we're expanding different you know we have so we have a list of like news priorities you know that we're focusing on this year and obviously some of them are obvious and some of them not so much just in the way the world is going so there's just so many teams to be a part of here and so many projects to work on and I'm just so grateful that I got this position to be a news editor because I kind of saw myself staying on the news editing desk for a long time because we had people who had been on the news editing desk for you know, 10, 15 years, um, like since its inception when they um, regionalized. And I thought, okay, I'm good here. And then I realized, yeah, I, I, I want to be a little bit more involved, you know. And then when this opportunity to be a news editor came up, I mean, I jumped on it right away and I had everyone at the AP telling me, oh, it's got to be you. It's got to be you. It's got to be you. And I'm like, okay, I still have to apply for it. So just <laughs> wait. Um, but, um, it's just such a fortunate job for me to have because there's only um, like a little bit more than a dozen news editors across the whole U.S. because we have multiple states and I'm only the second woman. So um, mm. the second current woman, I mean, there have been other women, but there's only two female news editors right now. So I just I, I acknowledge this privilege um, that I have and I. I'm really wanting to stay where I am in this position um, to really get a lot out of it. But, you know, sticking with the AP my whole career, that would be amazing. I'm not mm. going anywhere unless they kick me out. I've already. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see yourself ever wanting to uh, indulge in some of your other, um, you know, other passions in, in, you know, some, some kind of sidebar capacity, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, continuing to do some more magazine work or, you know, writing a book or any, any of that kind of stuff. Um, I don't really know. I, I write creatively now. Um, I, I can see, 
myself maybe writing like essays, you know, I really enjoy like reading Mm -hmm. essays. Um, as far as a book goes, I always saw myself writing a book, but, um, you know, nothing really like stuck out with me. So I just, I just absolutely love the, like the day-to-day fast pace of, of the news. Um, and I mean, there's other non-journalism things that, that like I would wish to explore a little bit more. I'm very into yoga and it would be like a dream of mine to be, you know, a certified yoga instructor. Um, so that's like Mm. kind of a a side goal for me. Um, but you know, I, I, my passion is my work. You know, it's not just a job for me, like the news and this job and this career is my passion. So like it's being fueled every day. Mm, that's, that's great. And, and I, I think that that clearly translates uh, in, in the way you, you talk about this work yeah. and the way you think about this work. And I, I, I truly think that it's, I mean, it's necessary in any profession, but you really have to love this uh, and mm-hmm. and everything that goes along with it, if not not just to be successful, but to to be fulfilled. And I I, I say yes. the same thing. I, I when people ask me, you know, I I, I wouldn't change a damn thing. <laughs> I really wouldn't. I love mm-hmm. being a journalist. I love teaching journalism and trying to inspire students to to become journalists. And it's just wonderful. And so it's really ha- really happy to hear that That's- you're you're so fulfilled. That's yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just working during the election time, like I was saying, is was the most like fulfilling thing of my career. So um, knowing that that's something I'm super passionate about and that's something that's not going away in the news anytime soon, you know, right. this is always going to be a thing. And every time there's an election day, I just get so jazzed up. Um, but you know, you, what you do, I'm envious of as well. I mean, you teach and I, I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I taught at as an adjunct for three semesters. Um, and I believe it was while you were there, um, 2011 fall of 2011 and then spring and fall of 2012. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I've been there since 2009. So yeah. Right. Exactly. So I, 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 just, it was once a week of Friday class. Um, I taught publication layout and design. So I taught Quark Uh and I taught InDesign. Um, but I loved it and I love talking to students and I love, um, being on panels and, um, you know, I'm actually talking to, um, a Rowan, uh, Linda Pollock's class next month. Um, I did that last year as well. And, um, so that's, that's also a part of it that I, I want to do a little bit more, like to go back to be like an adjunct, that would be cool. That's awesome. Like I, I like you really want to, you know, tell people about my passion, why we should care about news, why Mm -hmm. we should care about local news. So, so that's a, that's definitely a passion of mine as well. Oh, well, that's really cool. And you know, obviously that, that, um, Opportunity. I mean, I, well, I, I shouldn't speak on on a like HHR behalf, but you know, the 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 need for good adjuncts, you know, is is pretty much an yeah. evergreen, uh, you know, thing. So, yeah, come jump back in anytime. Yeah, <laughs> I'd great. love to. <laughs> yeah, it's just so it fun. Is. You know, it's just a fun thing. Yeah, it was something that I did. I um, when I started as an adjunct in two thousand nine uh, for the magazine class. It was really, it was, it was sort of a side thing at first. It was a way mm-hmm. to, cause I was a freelance, I was doing freelance writing full time and it was just another kind of thing to put in my 
you know, bucket of many different outlets that I was working for. And I, it was, it was almost immediate that I felt like, oh, this is, I love this. This is really exciting. And, um, and the, and the responsibility, you know, to, to make sure that we're sending students out into the world with the, the, the right kind of, not just skills, but also the, the proper mindset for doing work that I consider to be so important that, you know, the value of journalism is, uh, is so ex- extreme and to know that like, yeah, I'm playing some role in, in future generations, you know, uh, future folks like you that wind up working for the AP. And, yeah. Um, and that's why this podcast. And even was, if not, even if they don't, you know. Yeah. No. Absolutely. A- a- absolutely. Um, it is. It's. It, it's the getting to do this podcast has been even more fulfilling than I thought it would be. Now having talked to four four different folks with four very different careers and different trajectories. Um, yeah. The but the to be able to speak with former students now you know peers. Uh, of mine in the, in this profession has just been super cool and something that I never really considered before. And now it seems yeah. so obvious, like, Oh yeah, let's check in with these folks that we helped nurture, uh, into whatever it is that they became. <laughs> yeah. Well, it kind of seems like, like, um, you know, your passions kind of going into one, like, you know, like recording and also talking to former students. So it's like a teaching kind of part of it. And also obviously asking questions and being thoughtful as a journalist. So I think that's yeah. cool too. Yeah. So on that note, just one final thing, I guess any, any particular piece of advice that you would have for students right now that are looking to, to get into, uh, into this field? Yeah, I I think that's changed a lot for me recently. One thing that I have always and will always say to people who want to be journalists or want to be writers or, you know, any kind of job in the media that to be a good writer, you need to be a good reader. So you need to be a good consumer of news. You need to, and then that kind of, you know, um, just goes right into something I've been thinking about a lot more recently, um, which is being that good news consumer, you know, like you should always be reading a novel. You should be reading, um, big journalism. You should be reading the AP and the New York times and the Washington post, but you also should be reading the Philadelphia Inquirer, like South Jersey section. If you're from here, you know? Um, so it's, it's more than just, you know, having a passion to write, you know, what do you want to write about, (laughs) you know? So I just think reading and finding what you like to read, finding what stories really move you and are inspiring. When I hire people, um, the very last question I ask them, actually, sometimes it's the first question I ask them. I like to throw it off a little bit. Mm -hmm. I say, what are you, what are you reading? And for mm. me to consider that person for a job, uh, they have to give me a good answer. Um, so the best answer to that is novel or journalism. And I say both, and then they'll go down the list. And I'll thank mm. them for doing their part as a good news consumer, because to have any kind of job in the media, you know, you have to know that stuff. Mm. That's an excellent Excellent interview question. And yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, and I'm always telling as, as much as I can, I mean, some stuff 
my students have to read because they're class assignments. Um, like yeah. in my magazine, in my magazine class, we we read, and I tell them from the outset. I say, for as much writing as you're going to do in this class, you're going to do an equal amount, maybe even more, reading. We're going to read, you know, really interesting magazine pieces, and because it's impossible to grow as a as a writer without being a reader. So I I totally get that. That's great. That's great. Well, um, Christina, I have so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and for really, um, you know, I, I know that being interviewed, uh, is not, does not come without its (laughs) own sort of emotional, like, uh, exhaustion and walking me through so many aspects of your life. And I, I just really, I'm very grateful for that. So, Thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm very excited to have been invited. And I, I love talking about my, my career path, especially um, when students or, you know, other alum want to hear about it because it's just a career path I'm very proud of. And, and um, you know, I, like, I, I really like sharing that. Well, uh, yeah, and I could, <laughs> I was just saying to my wife uh, last night, um, I was like, you know, I'm, all of these interviews so far, none of them have come in under two hours. And, and I was like, I don't know why I'm surprised because a, I just, (laughs) I enjoy talking to people. I, I, you know, it's a big part of why I became a journalist. I, I, I'm just so curious about people's stories, you know? Uh, and, and then when you add the layer onto it that I'm talking to other journalists, like you know, I could go on. I, mm-hmm. There's so many other things that I, I, so many sidebars that I wanted to ask you about that I could ask you about. I, I definitely, you know, could continue this conversation for another several hours. So, um, but alas, we have to cut it off. Nobody and... ever asks us questions. I know. Right? <laughs> you know, we're the ones asking questions. So when I, we're yeah. on the opposite side of that, it's like, oh, somebody wants to know something about me. Here we go. Yeah, no, I, I totally, um, I totally get that. You know, I, I think I, the only time that I'm ever interviewed is usually, I think, yeah, exclusively by, by students, right. If they're working on a piece like, Oh, I need to interview Mm -hmm. a professor or I need to interview somebody who has experience freelancing. Can I interview you? And, um, and even in those, those like short little, you know, 10 minute interviews, I do get a little thrill like, Ooh, yeah. Now I'm the one who gets to answer questions. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Christina. And, um, you know, I, I'll definitely obviously keep you posted on, you know, when this goes live and, um, yeah, please and also do. just, also just in general, I'm, I'm super happy to have like connected with you, uh, and definitely plan on staying in touch and possibly having you come into one of my classes yeah. at some point, um, and just, you know, oh, staying on to. each other's radar. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I've always known who you were, like your name, but I'm glad we finally got a chance to talk. 